Uh, I'm going to be speaking this morning um, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 first, and then another passage from the book of Mark. And so the, the texts are going to be up there on the, uh, on the screen. And uh, so I'm going to begin Deuteronomy chapter 6 and begin at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And I'm sort of putting that alongside a passage from Mark chapter 12. So Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one. There is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. When Jesus was teaching at the temple courts, he asked, Why do teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Let's pray. Lord, may the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Now bless and instruct all of us, your people, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you try to make sense of the world, and I think that's what we're all kind of in that business, sooner or later you come up against a puzzle and it's a puzzle that's occupied uh, very good minds over many thousands of years. And it's the relationship between uh, unity and diversity. People in the ancient world uh, put it this way. They called it the one and the many. And basically what I mean is this. When any of us observe reality, we're faced with a barrage of things coming at us or in, uh, coming across being uh, communicated to our senses. A bewildering diversity and multiplicity. Each thing is different and each thing is complex. And so our initial response to that diversity, the, the many kind of coming at us, may be that reality seems random, seems chaotic, um, overwhelming. We can't get our head around it. 
We can't make heads or tails of it, as we say. But as we try to make sense of what we observe, hopefully we begin to perceive that even though on the surface there's a great deal of diversity, there's a principle of unity or coherence, something that makes reality meaningful, something that makes reality ordered rather than chaotic. We, we begin to perceive the one rather than just the many. Uh, like the motto on the American dollar says, E pluribus unum, out of the many, one. So I'll give you an example. Think about walking into a big airport or a train station in some big city. Let's say Grand Central Station in New York at rush hour. Let's say you've never been there before. Maybe you've never even been to a train station at all and you don't know your way around. So your initial impression is just a rush of the many. It's overwhelming. Overwhelming complexity, apparent chaos. You're in a swarm of humanity. Your sight and your hearing are bombarded. You see people of every imaginable ethnicity and background, each one with a unique appearance, speaking different languages, speaking with different accents, all moving in different directions, some out to the street and some down a labyrinth of winding tunnels and hallways. You might even hear unfamiliar words from a muffled loudspeaker. So how do you make sense of something like that if it's, if it's something you've never experienced before? How do you figure out what's going on? You look for a principle of unity or coherence to make sense of what you're seeing and hearing. And there is such a principle. And what it is in Grand Central Station, it's the train schedule. You look up at the departure board, which is the symbolic representation of that schedule. It lists the trains, it lists the tracks that they're on, the time they leave. And so your realization, gradually you realize that Grand Central Station, even though it is a greatly diverse and multiple and complex, it's not chaotic. It's an example of diversity in unity. Diversity in unity. A kind of harmony, really a kind of of dance once you come to appreciate it. Another way to illustrate this harmonious balance of unity and diversity, I think it's even a better visual illustration, is architecture. So, uh, is, I'm going to go through quite a few of these <laughs> fairly quickly, but um, you can see in some buildings, um, they have distinct and beautiful individual parts, sometimes differing in size and shape and proportion but all woven together into a unified design which is greater than the sum of its parts. And so I've got some famous examples up here. So I've got the Lotus Temple in New Delhi. Uh, next one is the Sydney Opera House. These are very familiar uh, buildings you've seen. Um, sometimes the buildings, I think, in, uh, designed by Antony uh, Gaudi in Barcelona, Spain. I think this one is the one I love. It's the, his masterpiece. It's, uh, it's a church. It's the Sangrada Familia. It's a beautiful cathedral in Barcelona. Or another familiar one would be the Duomo Cathedral in uh, Florence, Italy. All of these architectural works express unity in diversity or diversity in unity. And some of them explicitly use that harmony 
to give, and I think the Duomo was a good example, to give praise to God, give praise to the Creator. But that's not always the way human beings respond to this tension between unity and diversity. Often we people see people swinging to extremes. And again, I'm going to use some uh, pictures of buildings to illustrate this. So one common response to diversity is to impose order and unity by force. And we see this in some ancient architecture, in ancient Egyptian civilization, for example, uh, where the structures express imperial power, the godlike superiority of the pharaohs, uh, looking down at you, superhuman size, or uh, the unitary rule of Allah in some Islamic architecture. We see it in a more sinister form in the architecture of the 20th century in totalitarian states, both fascist and communist. Without a recognition of diversity, unity becomes an instrument of domination. This sort of architecture tends to be monumental, huge, overwhelming and overshadowing, crushing down the individual viewer, crushing down variety. And the message of such architecture is that you do not matter. You, the individual viewer, are insignificant. All that matters is the power of the state and the glory of the ruler. Underlying this is a fear of chaos. And so, you know, dealing with chaos by imposing order and uniformity, even if it involves crushing those who disagree with you. It's a brutal way to live. It's a brutal way to see the world. The multiplicity and variety of the world are rejected and treated as a kind of illusion. Only the whole, only the sum, only the hard bottom line of power matters in this kind of architecture, not the many parts that make up the whole. And too bad for those who disagree. Another response, and it's quite common in our time, is an extreme reaction in the other direction. In architecture, Traditional structures are associated with oppression and tyranny, and so the architect embraces chaos as an expression of individual freedom. Now, these buildings might look neat, and, you know, sort of different, but they, they're, there's something wrong about them. They lack symmetry. They lack coherence. They're purposely designed to look twisted and jagged and unstable and rickety in order to celebrate the rejection of traditional order. The whole is broken up into parts or smashed into pieces. And when you translate this into the world of ideas, you have a throwing out all categories and explanations. Uh, big unifying ideas and structures disintegrate into smaller and smaller bits and pieces. Without a recognition of unity, diversity spirals down into disintegration and chaos. So what does that all have to do with the passages that we read? Well, for a lot of people, when they read the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, and especially the part of the Old Testament that I read today from the Torah, they, they see it as something like that. They see it as a ramshackle, cobbled-together structure made up of pieces that don't quite match, and some of them quite bizarre. Other people, including lots of Christians, think of the Bible more like this. They think of it as a monolith. For them, the Old Testament in particular is just straight up a book of commandments, rules, requirements, demands. That's it. That's all it boils down to. 
And so they impose a one-size-fits-all understanding. They oversimplify it, and they ignore all the variety and all the diversity. And I just mentioned that whoever made that Ten Commandments uh, statue uh, ignored the commandment about graven images, I just want to say. Um, uh, but I would say that the Bible is actually a lot more like this. It's a lot more like that church that Gaudi uh, designed. Diversity in unity. Intricate and complex, but whole and complete. The Bible's like that. It's d definitely diverse. It's made up of many books, many authors, many genres, many styles. It has tremendous intricacy in its individual parts. Yes, there are laws and commandments, 613 to be exact, and some of them seem very strange to us, very bizarre to a 21st century reader, but they're set within a larger story, a unified story. The authorship of scripture is also a diversity in unity. God reveals or communicates his will to humanity, but he speaks through human authors who are immersed in, in history like we are, using human thoughts and words. The Bible is God's story. He's the main character. But he, he's, that, that story is playing out on a very big stage with room for a cast of thousands. In fact, it's a story in which every single reader has a part. When you read the Bible, it's not just their story. It's our story. It's your story as well. It's a story that begins at creation, moves into the story of Israel, reaches its climax in Jesus, and continues to this day as his followers co-labor with him in Jesus' kingdom. And it ends with the restoration of all things. It's a great, big, wonderful, unified story, unity in diversity. And it's the expression of God who is himself diversity and unity. Three persons in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that the triune God. And this triune God delights to bring unity and diversity into harmony because that is his very nature. The works of God in creation are grounded in this same principle. God creates a universe which is marvelously complex and filled with beautiful variety, with multiple levels of being, multiple forms of living and non-living things, and yet a universe which is held together by his power and by his spirit, unified and harmoniously interrelated. You can see it at the macro level, in the spiral of galaxies in the universe. Here we go. And we can see it at the terrestrial level. We see it in mineral, plant, and animal life coexisting in complex harmonies that we call ecosystems, where the parts are all interrelated, living together in harmony and inter interdependence. If we look at individual species in creation, we see the same thing. A beehive, for example, thousands of individual bees, each acting in a sense as individuals, but all working together cooperatively toward a common end, all of them as working with one mind, as it were. And if we look at individual creatures like human beings, again, we see unity and diversity in balance. God makes humans diverse. He begins by making them male and female, distinct yet bone of one another's bone and flesh of one another's flesh. And what God has joined together, Jesus says, let no one 
put asunder. The human body is made up of billions of cells, many distinct parts, yet that person, fearfully and wonderfully made, possesses a, a, a unity, a center of consciousness, a mind and a will that allow that person to act with purpose. When we think about putting human beings together. We think about Paul talking about the church in 1 Corinthians 12. He says it's, it's like a body. It's an analogy for the church. One body, many diverse parts, all acting together. The Bible's term for this harmony is shalom. It's often translated peace, but in Hebrew it's a richer concept than that. Its root meaning means wholeness, completeness. It's a condition in which nothing is lacking. All the parts of the whole are present. All the parts exist in harmony with the others. And that's the way life was meant to be, reflecting the richness of our Creator. So God made this good and beautiful world. He placed human beings in that world to be His image-bearing partners, to reign over it, to care for it, and develop its potential. But you all know what happened. You, all, the, you know that... Humans insisted on usurping God's place, defining good and evil for themselves, and sinking into disobedience and violence and degradation. But God never gave up on humanity. Instead, he worked to bring about shalom through one family, the family of Abraham, making a promise and then a covenant with them that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. And in that covenant, God was always faithful, always kept up his side, he showed this definitively in the Exodus when he brought the, the people of Israel forth from slavery in Egypt. But on Israel's side, it was always a series of falls. It was always a series of failures. The first five books of the Bible tell us about that failure. His, Israel fails to live up to its side of the covenant. And it's an exhausting picture. God acts to save his people. He delivers them. He provides for their daily needs. He leads them. He gives them laws and a holiness code for a purpose so that he, a holy God, can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. But an entire generation fails. They refuse to enter the promised land of Canaan. So God gives them what they want. Okay, you don't want to go into enter the land? You won't enter the land. And that's why we have Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second law. It's the law articulated to the new generation that is about to carry out its destiny. And then we come now to Deuteronomy 6. And it's a very important passage in the Bible. Very influential for the people of God in all ages. And the heart of that passage is verses 4 and 5. In Hebrew, it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. This is a really important moment. It's like that departure board in Grand Central Station that I was trying to show you. It's a place of orientation. It's a place of figuring out exactly where you are and exactly what's happening and exactly what God is doing. It's the unifying principle of this complex, diverse story that's being told in Scripture. It sums up the covenant in its essence. God's design for human life is all about wholeness, about completeness, about shalom, becoming complete as he is complete. The Lord your God is one, complete, whole, and unified. He is the one and only God. That's why idolatry, the worship of other gods, is completely out of the question for God's people. 
They've not entered into just a contract where the deal gets canceled if one side backs out. This is a covenant of love. It's more like a marriage than a contract. And God has shown his love, mercy, compassion to Israel, and it's absurd to give the love that belongs to God alone to objects which are not God's, which by definition cannot love us in return. That kind of divided loyalty is intolerable to the Lord our God, who doesn't do anything by parts or halves. He doesn't act by halves or love by halves or save by halves. God is all in. He's never half-hearted or tentative. And that's why in verse 15 and elsewhere in Scripture, he calls himself a jealous God. Not because he's envious and insecure or jealous as humans are, but because his intense, pure, perfect, complete shalom love requires the same in those he loves. The Shema speaks as well of God's good purpose for his people. It's God's will that human beings who are made in his image become like him, whole and unified in what they love and what they want, what they will, not torn apart and divided. So he says to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. These aren't just parts of a person. This, this is the whole person. The Hebrew word levav is what's translated heart. Levav in Hebrew thought is it's the seed of the emotions, kind of the way we say somebody's heart, their feelings. But it's more than that. It's also the will. It's the place, that core part of a person that is all about their motivations and their capacity to choose. And so this is a call to decide to commit yourself to God in love. The Hebrew word nefesh is translated soul. And sometimes we think of soul as this sort of disembodied, kind of like, you know, sort of ghosty type thing. But that's a very foreign thing to, to Hebrew thought. Um, the, the idea here is the soul is the gateway to one's whole life and being. The passageway where the breath is inhaled, where food enters the body. As Tim Mackey of the Bible Project puts it, you are a soul. It's your whole person, your whole being. And then the Hebrew word ma'od, which is translated strength. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's translated much or very. It's an intensifying adverb, but here it's used as a noun. And so, in a way, the closest you can get to it is, it's, it's love God with all your muchness. It's like a way of saying everything you've got. Put it all on the table, all your capacities, all your effort, all your passion, all your concentration. Love God with all your might, with all you've got. In other words, the essence of the law is not just technically keeping a whole bunch of scattered rules and regulations. The essence of the law is to love God fully as he loves us fully. Nothing held back, no reservations, give it all we've got, and that's where the blessing is. That's where shalom is, the wholeness. And finally, the covenant is about a unified human response to the shalom of God. The word shema in Hebrew means hear or listen, but it also means obey. In Hebrew thought, to hear or listen is not just to let sound waves pass into your ears, but to heed the words of the one who is speaking to you. I have these conversations with my kids all the time. You know, please take out the garbage. Please empty the dishwasher. Please come for supper. No response. 
And so I go up to the room, stomp, stomp, stomp with that dad stomp thing. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Were you listening? Meaning, if you heard me, you would do what I asked you to do. And that's the way that the Jewish people thought of that word Shema as well. That's what hearing meant. It's not just, it's not just going in your ears. It's actually engaging your will. You're actually doing it. The Shema is, a, is, a, is such a powerful, powerful creed. It's such a powerful prayer. It's had such a, a role of, in spiritual formation, including the spiritual formation of Jesus. Jesus obviously knew and loved this passage of the Hebrew Bible. He knew and loved Deuteronomy, to be honest, quoted it a lot. When Jesus is asked in Mark, which is the greatest commandment, essentially, what's the most important verse in the Torah? It's kind of a trick question. It's one of those like monolithic types of questions, right? And Jesus kind of resists that. He gives his listeners a two-for-one deal. What's the greatest commandment? I'll give you two. And he identifies Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God, Adonai, Elohim, as the great commandment. But he links it immediately with Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Even though the Shema was well known to every Jew, Jesus knew that his contemporaries needed to be reminded of the basic truths because they'd shifted the focus away from the core of love, from the core of heart worship of God to the particularities and technicalities of keeping rules and statutes and commandments. They'd done what we've seen in the architectural examples, torn apart what God had joined together, breaking the unity into pieces. Jesus goes even further. He says, you know, I'm not with you guys with this sort of airy-fairy spirituality that's all kind of separate and all sort of selfishly pursued, separate from the messy world of human relationships. He says, no way. Your love of God and love of neighbor go together. They are inseparable aspects of a whole. You want shalom, you've got to have love of God and love of neighbor right side by side. Your love of God inevitably moves you to your love of neighbor. If you shema God, if you hear him, then you will also hear the cry of your neighbor. You will respond to the need of your neighbor. You love God in the act of loving your neighbor. It's a unity. It's shalom. How is it that Jesus can so boldly say this? Where does he get this authority? And again, it is his unity, and the diversity in unity that he enjoys with the Father. Deuteron- now go back to Deuteronomy, because this kind of pulls the pulls the the two testaments together. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 to 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. I've highlighted that word listen because it's the equivalent of the word Shema, and it harks back to the Shema of uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The covenant requires loving the Lord God with your whole being and then hearing and obeying his will. Israel failed to do that, 
before Moses spoke the Shema, and Moses predicted at the end of Deuteronomy they would fail to do that in the future. But in the midst of radical failure, there is hope, and that hope is the Messiah, a future prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses, who will stand between God and his people as the mediator. He will love the Lord his God with his whole being. He will Shema. He will hear and obey the Lord's will completely. And so in turn, Israel is to Shema, this prophet, this Messiah, who will speak the very words of God. As the voice says at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. This passage links the Old Testament and New Testament as a diversity in unity. Though distinct, they are one. It links the Jesus of the Gospels with the Torah, the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, the New Covenant written on the heart, a unity, a shalom. And there's even greater unity and diversity in play here. The prophet is what John uh, calls the Word. He is the Lord. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? In Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples see Jesus in the company of Moses and Elijah. They want to build three tabernacles, which again is a link back to the Torah, a link back to the Pentateuch. But a voice from a bright cloud, another link back to the Torah, says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Shema to him. John 10, verse 27 says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Father and Son are one. And we, as adopted sons and daughters, are invited into that oneness, an endless circle of love and light, a place where we, are know, we know and are known, where we are loved in all of our diversity, in all of our differences, and yet, nevertheless, we are one unified body in Jesus Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one covenant people of God. And I finish with this beautiful verse from 1 Timothy 2. It says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God.